Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I'm here with James McGrath. And James, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. So in addition to being a regular attendee and sometime presenter at Starbase Indie, I'm also a professor in religious studies at Butler University here in Indianapolis. Excellent. So your work explores the intersection of religion, technology, and the future. How did you get started exploring that work? Well, that's a great question. I actually refrain from giving my my sort of full title, uh, which is the uh, Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature, which oftentimes immediately leads to the question, so what's with all the sci-fi stuff that you do then? <laughs> and the truth is, I got into the study of religion by way of biblical studies, and then came to Butler, where there was enthusiasm about uh, an encouragement to explore other topics. We're a small program, and so if I wanted to teach outside of my normal area, that was more than okay. And as I developed a, a couple of classes and explored in that way, I always like to connect what I'm researching with what I teach. And so I said, okay, well, let me see if I can present at some conferences. Let me see if maybe I can write an article or a book chapter. And it, it kind of took off and probably should have seen that coming. But I think that science fiction actually is is getting taken more seriously in recent decades than maybe it was prior to that. Uh, some of us always took it seriously, but that was just one more reason why some people didn't take us seriously. And right, so, yeah, sure. And so I feel like that's there's been something of a shift in that regard. And that coincided, uh, luckily for me, with me writing more and more on this subject. And so between that and the fact that I have a longstanding interest on longstanding interest in the intersection of religion and science. Mm -hmm. Science fiction often imagines where science and technology will go. Uh, there are also contemporary issues about where where things are now and will be in the near future. And so those sort of dovetail nicely into one another. And so all of my interests just became things that I teach about, things I write about, and of course things that I present on at places like Starbase Indie. And we love it that you do. So I read your book, Theology and Science Fiction. And in that book, you define theology as asking questions and exploring mysteries related to the nature of existence, transcendence, and meaning. So tell me a little more about how that affects the intersection between theology and science and a little more about how science fiction fits into that picture. Yeah, that's a great question. I should say that there are sort of narrow and broader definitions of theology. Uh, some people do it very much within you know, some specific, not just religious tradition broadly defined, but some specific you know, denomination or things like that. And for, for them, theology may be articulating and speaking on behalf of their own institution and things like that. And I do have so a religious affiliation, but I teach at a non-sectarian, non-religiously affiliated institution, and so have felt freer to explore. And at its worst, uh, religion can sometimes be a, an effort to uh, shut down exploration and tell people, yeah, don't look there. Don't uh, definitely don't cross that line. Uh -huh. But uh, at its best, you know, religion, spirituality, theology really do involve the imagination, right? And 
One of the things you notice right away as you start working in religious studies and science fiction and the intersection between the two is that there are similarities between the stories that ancient people told, which we think of as religious stories, you know, myth mythology and things of that sort, and the stories that are told in and through science fiction. Uh, sometimes the same characters appear, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. like Apollo or, or Ra or you know, whoever. And it's, it's you know, one of the interesting things at the intersection that most people thankfully don't view ancient aliens as serious history. And yet it's, it's a very, very popular premise that we enjoy as science fiction. And the question is why that should be. And I think the reason is that science fiction is really how we've updated that tradition of storytelling, imagining our place in the universe, asking big questions. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? Do we have a future? And if so, what might that future be like? And if you view religion as providing pat answers once for all to those questions that somehow drop down from the sky, then it might stand at odds with that. Uh, of course, there are science fiction stories in which answers drop down from the sky too. So that maybe is just another, another possible connection. Mm -hmm. But when you recognize that this literature, you know, that we think of as theological literature or mythological literature, you know, uh, the, the boundary between those is blurry and probably depends whether you're an insider or outsider to the tradition. But they're, they're human beings wrestling with these questions. And science fiction is one of the ways that we do that nowadays. And a genre that really is, is really well poised to allow us to do that effectively. Yeah, there were several ideas in your book that I thought were really fascinating. And maybe one of my favorites was the idea that certain concepts exist in both science fiction and theology. And so let's let's talk about some of these. I thought this was a very cool observation. So so canon, what does that mean? And what does it mean in, in theology and how does that intersect with science fiction? Yeah, I actually have a chapter that will should be out in print hopefully fairly soon in a in a volume on uh, theology and star Star Wars. And it takes as a starting point the uh, the scene in one of the more recent movies in which uh, Basically, fire is set to a sacred tree that's thought to contain, you know, sacred Jedi, Jedi scriptures in it, and it really just seemed to me a, a poignant uh, symbol of sort of the torching, as it were, of the uh, the expanded universe of Star Wars and things like that, and uh, took it as a launching point for exploring canon within that context. Of course, within Star Trek, right, the very fact that you can reboot, that you can have a parallel universe, uh, Spock can have a beard and things like that. And so there's always been room to ask, okay, well, can we tell a, a completely different story? And yet it's sort of with the same characters and things of that sort. Uh, there have been comic books. I had somebody kindly gift me something that I hadn't seen for a really long time, but brought back childhood memories. I don't know whether you had any of those records with the, the sort of stories on, on record, you know, Star Trek stories with accompanying comic books and things like that. Uh, I'm probably showing my age, but there's some in which like, you know, on the one hand, you know, Sulu is black, but on the other hand, Uhura is this white blonde woman and things like that. And part of it may just be that there were, there were some 
there's some printing issues and they said, oh, you know, nobody's going to care or who knows, this is low budget toys for kids, you know, who don't notice. But when I saw that, I had no recollection of that as a kid, uh, like that clicking for me. What's the status of comic books, right? Um, what's the status for that matter of, of headcanon, right? We, we imagine things in our, our minds, we fill in gaps in stories. And, you know, there, there are so many fascinating ways in which fans of Star Trek or other franchises and religious people can put a lot of effort into trying to show that there are no flaws with our, our uh, favorite franchise. There are no contradictions. It is all internally coherent and everything fits together. And our ideal values are expressed in them, right? And then you rewatch after a very long break, the original series and are like, oh no, the sexism, what was, I forgot about that. You know, it's like <laughs> way too long since I've seen these episodes. Uh, but also, you know, those are Klingons, right? One of my favorite episodes of all time is the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, Trials and Tribulations, mm-hmm. right? Where they go back into the trouble with Tribbles. And it's like, those are Klingons? Worf, what, you know, what, how do you explain this? And he's like, we don't speak about it with outsiders. And <laughs> <laughs> just dealing with these tensions that exist within any canon. So, yeah, I mean, science fiction is one of the places other than religion where people today regularly talk about canon. And I think there are actually interesting parallels between the two. Yeah, you talked about crossovers too, and I'm obviously familiar with science fiction crossovers. What are some notable crossovers in theology? One, one that sort of shows up within, within the Bible, that I guess could be put within that context, is the fact that in this very tiny uh, letter towards the end of the New Testament uh, called the Letter of Jude, uh, I sometimes call it the postcard of Jude. I mean, it doesn't even have separate chapter division numbers. It's just like one chapter. But it includes a quote from a book that's usually called First Enoch, right, or the mm-hmm. book of Enoch. And so Enoch is a biblical character, but then he makes appearances in extra canonical literature, which then makes an appearance in what becomes a work that becomes the, part of the Christian canon. And so there are things like that. I mean, there are also instances where you know, for instance, you know, the figure of the Buddha in Eastern churches you know, gets converted, uh, not, not converted in the religious sense, but gets transformed, as it were, into a saint. And store, some of the same stories are borrowed from that tradition and then told, but with a sort of a Christian spin on them and things like that. So, I mean, there's borrowing and things of that sort. And you can get characters, you know, from one franchise appearing in another. I mean, certainly familiar biblical characters show up in the Quran. And they're recognizably the same, and yet uh, they're different sometimes in important ways. And my favorite one is pilgrimages and sacred garb, because of course, you know, immediately I understood where I'd seen that in religious studies, but, you know, I've been to many conventions. This is absolutely a concept in science fiction as well. Yes, absolutely. And you've seen me don my, my, my sacred garb uh, and make the pilgrimage to uh, Starbase Indy. Indeed. And uh, there are you know, the, the efforts that are put into dressing in a certain way for, for really for no other reason than to celebrate these stories that are important to us and that uh, we find meaning in and that inform our worldview, um, express our values, and we want to participate in them in some direct way. And so costuming, right, is one of those things, you know, there, there are certainly church traditions and um, um, synagogue traditions and others where uh, costuming is kept to a minimum. And of course, there are fans of franchises who would 
never go to conventions or dress up. But many of us enjoy doing so. And the very fact that you can have kind of a, a sacred language that uh, just you know, a few a few words in in a particular language, whether it's it's Klingon or Latin, you know, can evoke uh, a certain story, a certain meaning, a certain framework of reference. Uh, so pilgrimage itself, right? The expense that people go to in order to go to the, some other part of the world, just to sort of walk in the footsteps of people from that story. And so we may not be able to go to, you know, Kronos or to um, Vulcan, but, you know, we can go to Iowa, right? And we can go to, and now we can go to Bloomington. And Bloomington, make it right? Much more closer to home. Yeah, and I love the talk about getting dressed up in a way to celebrate these stories. And that's the thing that I always talk about with Star Trek particular being a hopeful vision of the future. And, you know, so aligning with that gives us more of a, a connection to that idea that maybe we can work towards that more unified vision of the future, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think there, there's in with, within religion as within science fiction, right, there are pessimistic views of the future, mm -hmm. uh, some of which think that there's really no way of, of avoiding that future once you've spotted it. And plenty of stories, you know, the Terminator stories start in that vein, but then you get time travel and it's like, yeah, maybe we can change the future. And, you know, maybe it's not all set in stone. But then there are other ones that are optimistic and that are offering a vision of something to hope for. And so there too, I think, trying to trying to imagine the future. You know, some people think that science fiction is about trying to predict the future. And then if the, the technology doesn't keep up the pace or something like that, then, oh, well, those stories aren't uh, to be valued anymore. But really what they're trying to offer is a vision. And the fact that people telling stories about the future inevitably get details wrong, um, it shouldn't be the, the standard by which we judge the value of those stories as commentary and as offerings of warnings or hope regarding the future. Possibilities. So in your book, you say, if as per Clark's law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, then might it not also be said that any sufficiently advanced civilization is indistinguishable from divinity? Now, in your 2019 Starbase Indie presentation, you suggest that it takes more than the ability to do the miraculous, but that divinity also requires the absence of a rule like the prime directive. So why is that an important component? Well, first, I want to make give a shout out to the uh, Discovery, Star Trek Discovery episode, New Eden, where you know, Captain Pike actually talks about this. And you know, one reason why I've, I, I've taken a real liking to, uh, to the depiction of of Christopher Pike on uh, Star Trek Discovery is that apparently his father taught both science and religious studies. And so it seems like a person who I would get along very well with. And uh, <laughs> as, as so often with the, the topics I talk about at Starbase Indy, I was being at least somewhat facetious and tongue in cheek. But I think there's a serious side in as much as, you know, what do, what do people expect from deities? You know, uh, the, the fact that there might be an entity like let's say Q somewhere in the universe that never interferes because it knows better and is wiser than to do that and kinder than to do that might or might not be a, a deity, but it's almost like who cares, right? It's, it's not doing anything. It's not inter intersecting, it's not interfering. Uh, the whole notion of 
deities that have some relevance to us and intersection with us are the ones that we think of as, as tampering in some way with, with either our day-to-day -day lives or with, with something in the process. And so that's really what I was trying to get at. And it actually was prompted by me hearing somebody say, uh, I think it was actually in a sermon that you know, sort of God doesn't observe the, the prime directive or something like that. You know, God is, you know, God intervenes. And I was like, huh, now does God do that? What was that part of being a God? You know, what's the, you know, that's my mind. You know, somebody could be, make a passing reference to Star Trek and I'm like, oh gosh, I think I see an article in this or at least a blog post. <laughs> Well, that makes sense. I'd never thought about it being uh, part of the way we talk about deities is that they do affect the course of events in a lot of these stories. And so they're not hands off. They're showing up in your face and <laughs> making things the way since they would know how things should be. Right. Well, you'd think. But, you know, the other the other thing I was hoping to get at through the, that uh, you know, sort of connection was the fact that it's often viewed as, you know, a, a a downside you know, or um, a criticism of, of an alleged you know, or purported deity that the deity doesn't interfere, uh, doesn't get involved when we really would like them to. And yet, you know, time and again, you know, Starfleet, you know, Starfleet crews don't do the things that you know, a, a, people, a pre warp civilization is, is appealing to any and all powers that be to, to do, to rescue them from their plight, because we know that, you know, we've learned enough that tampering doesn't always work out well. And so there's an interesting thing to think about there. You know, it's like, is, you know, is the, the lack of intervention, you know, is that indicative of divine wisdom or divine non-existence or, you know, could be either and it's, you know, there's no way of telling, uh, but we don't always, yeah, I, I hadn't seen anybody make the connection with Star Trek in that way. And I thought somebody should, and so I did. <laughs> so you did. This is how we do it, right? So um, if I go back a little farther and I looked at the program for 2018 and you talked about autonomous computers in the Kobayashi Maru and you suggest that when situations arise where there are no good options, it might actually be helpful to leave those hard decisions to machines rather than having humans make them. So tell, talk more about that. Yeah, so I, I've been working on... Um, I should say, you know, um, mostly failing to work on, but tinkering away slowly is probably the best description uh, at a project that's a collaboration between me and a computer science, uh, computer scientist, exploring the intersection between ethics and technology uh, in the present day and the near future. And so one of the first things we turned our attention to was uh, the programming of autonomous vehicles. If a driverless car can calculate the odds of certain outcomes, which of course you can't know for sure, but can, can do some calculations, maybe has technology that allows it to detect who's in front of it. You know, maybe you can do facial recognition. So on one side, you have sort of a pregnant woman that it can identify as pregnant. On the other side, you have two people, but they are both you know, convicted uh, felons or something like that. Should it aim for the two felons you know, rather than the, you know, um, should any of that come into play, right? Should, you know, how do you program a machine that may sometimes have to decide who to kill because making sure that nobody dies in this scenario is, is not possible by the time it becomes clear that an, a collision is inevitable. And it's really the, the situation that if we put ourselves in the driver's seat, literally, uh, we, we, you know, we don't want to deal with those kinds of situations. 
we're like Captain Kirk, right? I don't believe we don't believe in no-win situations. We hate to lose. We also hate calculations of the odds, right? Uh, we don't want never to, tell me the odds. Yeah, uh, <laughs> was debating whether to work in another franchise back there. Um, we're we're really polyfranchisual yeah. around. Starbase Indian, really every geek I've ever met likes more than one franchise. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and that's true for you too, right? I've never actually met someone who's like, well, I'm a Star Trek person, so I don't like Star Wars. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I only own Star Trek costumes, but part of that is because, you know, Jedi robes are really expensive, you know, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but seriously, so even if we had to do the mental math and we're capable of doing so, figuring out whether it's better to choose an option that has like a 43% chance that one person will die, but otherwise maybe nobody dies, or an 87% chance that you know, multiple people will be injured, but then a lesser chance of you know, a fatality. It's, you know, it's like, how do you, we don't want to weigh things in that way. And yet for a machine to do the equivalent of making decisions, it needs to do that. And that's what we expect the machine to do. And so we actually are asking machines to do something that we don't like to do. <laughs> and we're liable to complain about the outcome when they do what they do this thing that we ourselves would like a pass to say, well, we can't really quantify it. And so I just went with my gut and I tried, you know, I wasn't sure what to do as the spur of the moment, the adrenaline kicked in. And we have all these excuses and a machine can potentially do a better job with any calculation that needs to take place in, in that kind of crisis, right? It'll process it all much more quickly. It won't freeze up exactly the way we are liable to. And yet we're probably still going to be dissatisfied with the outcome because we don't like prioritizing our values, right? Which is more important to, to protect the people in the car who own the car uh, or to protect the maximum number of people. They actually surveyed people to find out what people thought. Mm -hmm. And everybody said the more ethical car is the one that maximizes the number of survivors. And yet, if it's not prioritizing you as the passenger in the car, people didn't want to buy that car. And so it, it tells us something about ourselves, even just looking at this. I'm not sure we have a good solution to the question of how to program machines to do these things. But I think we learn a lot about ourselves and our ethical reasoning and the ethical reasoning we don't like doing. By, uh, by attempting to do this and by thinking about it. It's really one of the, the fun things about science fiction, and as more of it becomes science fact, is looking at the, those theoreticals. And you talk about having um, you know, the machine make the decision rather than a person. We're still at a point where the people are telling the machines what to decide. So it's kind of not the person who's in the chair at the moment, but somebody has made that decision for the machine, right? Yeah, and, and who gets sued, right? If somebody's unhappy, right? Is it the owner? Is it the programmer? Is it the car company? You know, which maybe outsourced the software to some, you know, some other third party, things like that. And then you know, should people have some control, right? Should you be able to crank up the, the sort of self-preservation knob a little bit when you put your, you know, your, your spouse and children in the vehicle, whereas you might feel altruistic and dial it back when you yourself were in the vehicle, um, if you're so inclined. Um, you might secretly, once, you know, your family's out of sight, you might, you know, crank it up all the way, when, you know, but you want them <laughs> to think you're altruistic, but actually you're, you want to get home to see them safely. Uh, should, you know, that, the very fact that we could 
make it customizable. So it's like, it'll have different algorithms that apply depending on how it's set might undermine some of the safety that would come with machines behaving in ways that are coordinated and therefore more predictable than uh, human driver's behavior currently is. So you have been speaking at Starbase Indy for several years. Tell me what you love about Starbase Indy. Uh, I mean, the thing I love is that it's it's a place to, to, to geek out with people who, who share my love of science fiction, while also talking about things I think are serious and important through the medium of science fiction. And so I've had a chance to talk about things like you know, information and you know, how do we find reliable information and you know, where does that information come from and how do we navigate it? Uh, talk about programming autonomous vehicles, talking about you know, what, is a, what is a deity and what can we learn about that from Star Trek? Uh, I think that understanding religion, understanding uh, technology, understanding ethics, that all these things are important. And I love that Starbase Indy isn't just yet another local place where people enjoy these things and express that, but has as its goal promoting, you know, sort of science literacy, pro promoting uh, expert perspectives on big and important questions that can be addressed in a natural way through our fandom. And so it's, it's, just, it's just a wonderful thing. And I fear that as with so many things, you know, most of the people who listen to the podcast will be people who already know and love Starbase Indy, but I hope that it will also reach some people who uh, maybe have just heard of it, but have never attended and will persuade them that, yeah, this is, this is something I really should go to. You know, it's one of my goals because as I have spent many years trying to explain to people what Starbase Indy is in you know an elevator speech, but it's so many things. Um, and so and the conversations that are had there are so broad and so varied. Um, and so my hope in having you know 52 opportunities to put out podcasts over a year uh, and get to talk to all the whole breadth of it, right? So far, you're, you'll be about the seventh episode that we publish, and I've talked to an actor and some musicians and a scientist and a theologian, and you know, so all of this variety all around what does the future potentially look like, and also who brings to life these stories that we love. Yeah. So my yeah, I think I think it should be called a turbo lift speech, but would be <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Is that you, you actually, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smaller local convention, right? I mean, at Comic-Con, you know, there'll be some of these same people there. You have all these you know, experts and you know, famous people, but you're not going to get much chance to get anywhere near them. Um, you might not get to meet them or do those things. Whereas at Starbase Indy, it's, it's a smaller event. And of course, you know, there, there are advantages and disadvantages and everything, but yeah, you, you might actually talk to somebody that, you know, you'd think it would be really cool to talk to. And chances are it'll not just be sort of actors and directors and producers and people like that, but it'll be scientists and it'll be, you know, ethicists and it'll be professors and it'll be uh, librarians who uh, use science fiction as a means of promoting literacy or promoting uh, accurate information about science or things like that. And there are opportunities, both formal and informal, to talk to such people. And I think we've arrived at our floor. Sorry, the turbo lift metaphor. Yes, it's the turbo lift. Yes, I got that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, your talk this last year was about whether we would need Google in the 23rd century. So what did you decide? Do we need Google in the 23rd century? Well, the, that got started because I do a lot about you know, information literacy and you know, teaching students how to use the internet wisely and how to identify reliable sources of information. And I realized that you ask the computer on the enterprise a question and you mostly get one answer or, right, as in, uh, as in Dharmak, you get a long list of possible meanings of the word. But, you know, on the one hand, the, 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 the machine seems to give you, it, it's, it's different in so many ways than Google results. And I wanted to explore that. And so I had a lot of fun with it. I actually uh, put an LCARS you know, display on the screen and actually had a conversation with the computer, uh, which was fun. And yeah, Starbase Indy was, was just a great venue in which to do that because there were people who were interested in all the things that I wanted to explore in this. And I'm not sure that any other audience would have brought that same convergence. But in short, I think that the Starfleet computer probably is not our optimal thing. Uh, and yet it may be the best for the situation because in the context of a crisis, you will need voice commands and you will need one clear answer. But that may not be what we should be looking for in terms of the more ordinary uses of Google search and research and things of that sort. And so it may be ideal for certain cir circumstances, but I'd really love to know what, you know, what if anything, is the actual equivalent to Google, right? What ordinary people use and what researchers use um, in the you know, in the 23rd century and beyond. It's an excellent point because you're right. We over and over again see someone ask the whatever uh, mechanical knowledge source is in that canon for the answer, and they get the answer that is helpful. But information is more complex than that, and we've seen that with the news and with information about the world that there isn't one answer. There's a variety of perspectives and you get the best result by looking at multiple perspectives and kind of weighing where they're coming from. Yeah, and sometimes there's a clear answer to a question mm -hmm. and getting lots of results that say different things is counterproductive, right? And is, is, is can sometimes downright harmful, can be life-threatening. In other cases, you may get a clear answer and in fact, things are more complicated than that. And people, or people may convince themselves that there's a clear answer, uh, despite the fact that there's evidence to the contrary. And so figuring out how machines, not just uh, might, but should provide information, right? I and mean, can we automate the process of saying, here's one clear answer, don't ask any more questions. You know, the, the other stuff that's out there is, is really garbage, right? I mean, should we trust a machine to tell us that? Um, at the moment, the answer is definitely no, right? Uh, machines do not have that, the capacity to, that, to do that. Um, had a very interesting uh, Google pane, Google information panel result uh, recently that I could, that could illustrate that, but I sort of have to show it and this is not the venue for that. But I'm sure people can think of other answers, other instances where the, the one clear answer that Google provides is, is not the right answer. And so, the, this whole project that I've been collaborating on really does fall under the heading of the thing that my uh, collaborator Ankur Gupta came up with. Uh, he calls it artificial wisdom, right? Can, can machines have not just intelligence, process data, clearly they can, 
but actually make wise decisions, embody those things that we that we do as human beings that require values and judgment and discernment. And that's much harder. Uh, if we can program machines to do that, then they'll probably do it better than we can because they'll be both quicker and maybe more consistent than we sometimes are. On the other hand, at the moment, we haven't figured out how to do that. And we may start relying on machines. I think maybe we already have started relying on machines under the illusion that they do that. And that was one of the things I wanted to explore in my talk. Yeah, certainly that is the idea that machines are always objective. But then if you go digging into the research on how those algorithms are written and some of the major misses that have happened already in our short history of algorithmic decision-making, you start realizing this is a little scary because we don't always recognize our own biases. And then if we bake them into something and assume that that's now objective because it was a computer, Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. I'm not sure what else to say other than, oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Another concept that you brought up in your book a couple of times is there's sort of a science fiction conceit often that stories depicted in religious texts were actually aliens showing up to, you know, maybe it was a, a tractor beam that parted the Red Sea. And then the question that you bring up was, does that invalidate the story? Or does, how does that change the nature of faith if there's a technological explanation? So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the things that fascinates me is that you know, Star Trek, you know, who mourns for Adonis, Apollo literally exists, right? In a way that if you talk to a classicist, right? Or somebody who studies these ancient texts, be like, yeah, this is this is a concept. This is a, a character. This is not, you know. And yet, there have been so many instances in which a story is told that I think many would view as as essentially debunking sort of a religious perspective by saying, you know, as as Captain Kirk does, Apollo's no god, but he may have been mistaken for one once, right? Well, if if he can do all these things that are depicted in the show, literally, right? He literally exists, and he can zap people with lightning bolts and he can grab the enterprise. How is that not a God, right? What kind of definition of God are you working with? Uh, it may be sort of the God with a capital G that is sort of all powerful and can't be defeated. Uh, what are the best answers I got when I asked, you know, what is a God according to Star Trek at Starbase Indy? Mm -hmm. Somebody in the audience said, if Captain Kirk can defeat it, it's not a God. And <laughs> Yes, that works. Okay, I think most religious people would say that's that works as a definition, at least nowadays. And yet, people outsmarted the gods in you know classic stories of of a variety of traditions, and in you know ancient Greek storytelling about the about deities, they were not perfect either in power or in wisdom. And so, if you are not superimposing a certain certain concepts of God onto this question, then if an alien led your people out of slavery into freedom, for instance, why wouldn't it be worthy of your worship? I'm not 100% sure that you should, but I think it's a question worth asking because it helps us to think about, you know, what exactly do we think makes an entity a God or not a God, right? Why is Q a deity or not a deity? Uh, certainly behaves like one and certainly thinks of himself in those terms, you you know, at least or seems to. Uh, 
and seems as conceited as uh, some of the <laughs> some of the some of the deities you may have encountered in certain stories. And you know, why not? You know, if he's not, why not? Is it just because we don't want him to be? Well, that in itself tells us something interesting about ourselves and where we're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my day job is in uh, learning and I do instructional design. And this is one of the ways you teach people things is you give them examples and counterexamples. And how does that, that's I think one of the functions science fiction has always played for us is to give us stories that serve as ways to talk about things that we can't talk about directly because it's confusing or too sensitive in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I discovered is that, you know, while people have long known that that's true in thinking about history, thinking about, you know, discrimination, thinking about, you know, what is a, a person and, you know, some of those kind of questions, it's, it's just as true in the things that you associate with religious studies as well. I love these intersections as part of what I think is so fun about having these conversations. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, as you can probably tell. So what are you working on next? So my next big project uh, related to uh, is, well, my, my next big research project, uh, I'm going to be spending pretty much the whole of the, the next academic year working on a book related to uh, John the Baptist as a historical figure. And so it's much more my sort of biblical studies, ancient religion thing, uh, mm -hmm. but have recently been involved in uh, and have been writing on topics like uh, the, the intersection, not just of uh, theology and Star Trek, theology and Star Wars, but also theology and Lost. Um, oh. That's a show that I'm quite a fan of. And uh, it's, 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 it's one of those franchises that just was sort of personally meaningful to me. And so I saw a call for papers and was like, I really shouldn't. You know, I have so many other projects already in the pipeline, but I was like, yeah, I can't say no to this one. This one, I'm going to have to do it. Uh, and then have thus far resisted the temptation to uh, sign up to add, contribute things to volumes on topics like um, Dune. And hopefully, hopefully there'll be something on, you know, foundation in the near future, uh, the, the television version is, and over against the, you know, the original. So there, there's plenty more to do. Uh, but for the next year, I'm going to try to at least largely focus my attention on John the Baptist. But I will be also continuing this project about basically computer programming and ethics and seeing, seeing what we can learn at the intersection between the two. And so that one, I hope I will tinker with more than I have been doing of late. Let's put it that way. Well, I am looking forward to uh, whatever you speak about this year, because you will come back and speak, right? So I may actually be... Uh, away on sabbatical uh, for this year, so it may not. You know, when I'm when, when I'm digging uh, co in concentrated fashion on, in, into uh, sources about John the Baptist, uh, may have to take a, a break. We'll see. Um, I will I will get back to you on that. Oh, my plans, my plans, <laughs> are not entirely clear. Uh, but but I if if I am here and I'm able to, I will be back. Yeah. So one, will you travel for this work on John the Baptist? I'm hoping to uh, definitely we'll do some travel. Uh, the, some of the details are still are still to be pan, uh, pinned down. Mm -hmm. there, there are some ancient texts that have like never been translated into English uh, that really deserve some attention and things like that. And so I'm I'm planning on doing that sort of uh, that sort of work as part of this project. Oh, how fun! So you'll have to go to where those texts are so you can look at them and translate them. So there's the interesting thing is that for the most part nowadays. 
any any manuscript that you can find in a library catalog somewhere, you can order digitized copies of you know, if you're an academic. Oh, that makes sense. So that's you know, that's less essential. But the thing that's interesting is that you go to some of these, the oldest libraries in the world, often they're like university libraries, like, you know, Oxford University's Bodleian Library. Mm -hmm. And the online uh, sort of finding, you know, resource finding aids will tell you, you know, uh, for more information, consult the card catalog, right? You know, I mean, they've, there's information that has not been digitized yet. Uh, there are also manuscripts that, you know, have, vague descriptions and you know they've never been published they've never been translated and so from the little you can find out there might be something really interesting there or it might be just another copy of a text that has a similar name and you won't know unless you go there and actually look at the card catalog maybe even look at the manuscript wow i didn't realize card catalogs were still in use anywhere, yeah. but I guess it makes sense if some of these libraries are a thousand years old, they might not have gotten everything digitized yet. So yeah, there, 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 there's, yeah. And that intersects with my interest in technology, right? Because right. most, so much of what I do, I can, you know, when I'm trying to trace a reference to something, very often, you know, it's, you know, through Google Books having a preview or something else, I can figure it out and can track it down online. Mm -hmm. and so the flow of information, the availability of digitized manuscripts is amazing, but there are still some things where you've, you've got to go and look and figure out what this thing is. And they're still finding fascinating texts that were presumed you know, to be lost in the mists of time have actually been in libraries, but they were miscatalogued or they were uh, put under some generic label that didn't make clear what they were. And so there's still work to be done that involves uh, that that machines have not made uh, you know, have not uh, removed the need for yet. You don't necessarily let the machine handle the three thousand year old manuscript. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, the white gloves and uh, right, yes, and then touch it very delicately. Well, thank you for talking to me. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Lisa, and always <laughs> a pleasure talking about Starbase Indie and talking about uh, these topics of mutual interest. And I'm looking, you know, it, it may may not be on the podcast, but I'm looking forward to continuing conversations because uh, just because the podcast ends, uh, our conversations don't. Right. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.